The Bakari Sellers Podcast tackles the most pressing current events through conversations and interviews with high-profile guests. Building upon his experience in South Carolina government and politics and his experience as a lawyer, Sellers will talk to his guests about all topics from the world of politics. Check out the Bakari Sellers Podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Just a note, we're going to talk about suicide on today's podcast. If you or anyone you know has thoughts of suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one 800 273 8255. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to Press Box Friday. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Erica Cervantes. If you're new around these parts on Monday's Press Box, my tag team partner, David Shoemaker, and I talk media stuff. And then I do an interview on the Friday show. Today's guest is a big one for me. He is Ivan Maisel. Now, Ivan has been covering college football since 1987. And I think I've been seeking out his byline for just about that long in Sports Illustrated, on ESPN.com, and now on a website called On3. Ivan and his wife Meg had a son named Max Maisel. Max stood 6'5 and weighed 135 pounds. He was a college student, a photography major in upstate New York. When he was 21 years old, Max died by suicide. Though as Ivan reminds us, suicide is an act, not a person. Ivan's new book, I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, tells us about Max. It recounts the grieving process that he and his wife and daughters went through. It's not a self-help type of book. It's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment rendering of grief, one that is wonderfully written, and to use a word Ivan does not, shattering. As Ivan writes, a parent's memories of a dead child are like Easter eggs in a video game, with one important distinction. The reward can wobble your knees. Here's Ivan Mazel. Ivan, what was your son Max like when he was a kid? Max was a quirky kid, Brian. He he was different in the sense that it, it, you know what we had thought at first thought was cute, like his ability to recite Dr. Seuss books from memory when he was about three. We began to we were told was pathological. You know there was something going on there and. Doctors could never quite pin down what it was. You know, we we had him poked, prodded, examined, et cetera, and all we got was he's somewhere on the spectrum. You know, thanks a lot. Um, he had trouble with social cues, as kids on the spectrum often do, was very shy. Uh, but, you know, on top of that, behind that, wall that he kept up was just a big doughy lump of sweetness. He really cared about people. 
my wife reminded me the other day we were talking about he he loved Broadway. He loved shows. He loved musicals. He loved comedy. He hated the Book of Mormon because he couldn't get past the fact that he thought they were making fun of the Mormons. Uh, <laughs> and he was like 15 years old, you know, but uh, uh, it didn't stop me from laughing. Uh, he, I, my, I said in the book, and I have always said this, but, you know, when he was alive, I said it, you know, his lack of interest in sports was proof that God had a sense of humor, you know, for, for someone as I did, who grew up learning to read on the sporting news and learning to do division by doing earned run averages, uh, Max just had no interest. And, uh, but where I was able to connect to him was, you know, slapstick, uh, you know, the Marx brothers, uh, Bob and Ray, uh, and he developed this really sort of Bob and Ray, like sharp, dry wit, uh, that was just, uh, perfect. And, and, and it had to be that way. If you, if somebody didn't understand and you tried to explain to them what we were laughing about, Max would just thunder, don't explain the joke. So, uh, he was, uh, uh, and, and more to the point, as he got older, uh, began to make friends online. You know, he didn't have a lot of friends at home. Uh, kids were nice to him, but they just, he, he didn't know how to reach them, but he, he made friends online playing games and, and then found, found his calling with a camera in his hand. He became a really good photographer and that's what he was studying at RIT. Why do you think photography appealed to him so much? Well, I know how he got interested. I don't know why he was interested. I don't know what it was that spoke to him, but we used to go skiing. Uh, my family, uh, extended family, has a house in Colorado, and there was a photographer who had a studio in Steamboat that we just loved his work, and we bought a few pieces uh, that still hang in our house, and Max was captivated by those and by the, by the photographer, Don Tudor, who was just a tremendously nice man. And uh, when Max was in college, uh, his last spring break, which would have been his uh, sophomore year, 2014, he called me and said, can we go to Steamboat? I need to take some photos there for photography. You know, and if your kids ask you to do something, especially at that age and say they want to spend time with you, you yeah, yeah, I can do that. So we went out there and I, and he called Don and this was a big step for Max. He called Don and asked if, if they could get together and Don came over and Max just is this very shy kid was just, bada, 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 bada. you know, they were talking back and forth and Don was showing him his, his uh, equipment and how to do things. And, you know, I texted Meg, my wife and said, you would not believe this conversation. And, you know, he, he really, Whatever it was that spoke to him, it spoke to him. You write in the book, a lot went on between Max's ears, most of which he guarded carefully. What was that like on a day-to-day -day basis for you? It was hard. It was hard. Not, you know, he, he, uh, he put up a shell and it was sell out of self-protection. Uh, he didn't, uh, he didn't want to participate there was a lot of stuff he didn't want to do. He was scared to do. He had a lot of fears and it, you know, he had a, 
he, I mean, he, he had a lot of things he had to deal with. He was allergic to a lot of stuff, which meant he was getting shots. And if you remember what that's like as a child to get shots and he had to get them regularly. And I just, you know, felt awful about that. There was nothing I could do for him. Um, he, but it, it was just a, uh, uh, he was just very quiet and, and very uh, shy and withdrawn and, and try to coax him out. And, and one of the, I guess regrets is the word, uh, you know, that, that I wish, I wish I had done a better job. I built a bridge to him through humor, but, you know, I really only reacted in trying to get him to come over to where I was. I didn't do a great job of going to where his, he was and his interest and, you know, what it could have, should have, I wish I had done better with that. And his interests at this point are anime video game soundtracks. Yes. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. And, and anime, you know, it's, I mean, I, I like Looney Tunes as much as, you know, the next boomer, uh, and I still watch them and still laugh and he loved them, you know, and, and, uh, but he graduated into anime and, 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 you know, Brian, part of that is also when they're teenagers, they don't really want to deal with you, you know, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of, especially at the end, Max developed later, matured later emotionally than kids his age and his last, uh, his last winter break, home from college his junior year, he was more withdrawn than normal. And we just read that as, okay, you know, he's been late on everything. Now he's a stat, he's reassert, he's asserting independence. And so the four of us would be in the kitchen, the four of us being our girls and Max was the middle child. And we'd be talking, Max, come in here. And he, no, I'm okay. And we just kind of thought, you know, he's being, He's fine. He, you know, he's, he doesn't want to deal with us right now. Okay. Well, you know, with, with the benefit of hindsight, you can see he was beginning to, you know, do the spiral and that was just, you know, one in, in many misreads. And as you say, it's with hindsight because at the time you're trying to disentangle his own issues, being a teenager, being a typical early 20 something who has right. a very specific relationship with their parents from what you would later discover was mental illness, essentially. That's exactly it. And uh, we, I have, I won't speak for my wife or my, my daughters. I've been fairly pragmatic about, you know, I did the best I could with what I knew at the time. And, uh, you know, of course, there are do-overs I would like to have. I, but... Um, I don't, I, I think mental illness is, you know, it's not something that can be changed by, oh, if I had watched more anime with him, you know, he'd be here today. I mean, I, you know, that's remarkably, uh, it's understandable for people to think that way. I get that, but mental illness is a lot more insidious than that and, and a lot tougher to defeat, you know? And, uh, so I'm, I don't have a lot of guilt in that sense. Uh, the one issue with guilt that I do have is if you screw up with your children, you know, you make, can make it up. You know, I mean, it's like you have a, you know, you, you 
handle even now with our, our adult daughters, you know, it's like, they're like friends now. And you sometimes with friends, you screw up and you, you make up, but you know, our, our bowl of memories with Max is, uh, there's nothing new to put in it. Uh, You know, I, I, I love for people, you know, one of the people would say to me, well, we didn't want to bring him up to you after he died. And you want people, you want to talk about him. It keeps him present. And, you know, my memories and my interactions with him are finite. Somebody else comes to me with a, a memory. That's something new to me. You know, we, my, his fourth grade teacher the other night started telling me about him in the colonial play. You know, we live in New England. So, of course, in fourth grade, there's a colonial play. And she, you know, 20 years, well, yeah, I guess it would be almost 20 years later. She remembers him and, and, and how well he did and how the way, what he did as Patrick Henry, mind you, mm. uh, impressed the other children. And, you know, and that's, that kind of stuff is just gold to us these days. So it's, as you say, take, getting away from the simple idea of regret, but, but dealing with the idea that these things are all permanent record that relationship is not going to change and develop and, and over yeah, time. I mean, it, it's, uh, sure. I, I would, uh, uh, that's, and that's the saddest part of it. Well, not the saddest part, but that's, that's on the metal stand of one of the saddest parts of it. You know, it's just, you don't get to do anything new. So he gets through high school in Connecticut, goes to the Rochester Institute of technology in upstate New York, where he studies photography. As we mentioned, your hope for him there was what? get through. I mean, uh, what we hoped is that he would find his people in college because he didn't find them in high school and that he would, uh, mature, come out, uh, and be able to find something that he could do that would engage him. And he, Max had such anxiety about, uh, would he be able to do the work in college? And then it became in those last weeks, he was really struggling with, I'm not going to be able to get a job. I'm not going to be able to graduate. You know, his professors after he died told us he was doing fine. And there was one professor in particular who I wrote about in the book that really took a shine to Max and, and really kept an eye on him and thought he was making terrific progress. What happened in February, 2015? What happened is I answered the phone one night. I was, it was a terrible winter in New England, and I, it was a Monday night. Uh, Meg was out. Uh, our youngest was a senior in high school. She was upstairs. The house phone rang, uh, and it was a sheriff from Monroe County, where Rochester is, and he said, is, is Margaret Murray there, who's my wife? And I said, no, can I help you? I'm her husband. And he said, well, we found a car of hers parked at the pier at Lake Ontario uh, in Greece. Uh, you know, well, at, in Rochester, at the edge of, you know, at the shore of, in Rochester. And I knew what had happened. You know, I, I, I just knew that that park is a mile east of Meg's my wife, Meg's brother's summer home where we had gone every summer. Max has been in that park every summer, you know, for the previous 15 or 20 years. One of the reasons he went to RIT was he felt comfortable in Rochester. 
uh, he, he used to take photos in that, uh, you know, of the lake from there. He, you know, that was his turf. And I knew what had happened, you know, he, the, and the, the policeman, uh, excuse me, the sheriff, subsequently we learned it was an awful night somewhere around zero when whipping, but there was a, a local resident who was just sitting in the parking lot in his truck, watch Max get out of his car and walk to the pier. And 45 minutes later, he hadn't come back. So this guy goes to a convenience store around the corner and says, I just saw something that I think is kind of odd. And they talk about it. And he called, thank God, he called 911. And, uh, and that, you know, and then the, and then the, the horror show began. You talk so much about your feelings in this book over the next months and years after that night. Can you go back now with six years distance and isolate what your feelings were in that moment when you get the phone call from the sheriff? Well, I, I just knew Max was dead. Uh, and then it's, and then it's just sort of scrambling, trying to maintain, uh, your balance. I, you know, I, I used to wake up every, those first days. I woke up every morning before dawn and I would just you know, vomit into this laptop, you know, all my emotions and feelings. And that was how I grieved. And the first, the first weeks, they weren't even complete sentences. You know, the first, you know, the first couple of weeks, it was just, my mind couldn't really stop on any one thing. And, uh, you know, our extended families, mine mostly from Alabama and Meg's mostly from upstate New York, all congregated in Rochester. And it became evident to me within those first three or four days, Brian, that I was going to have to be the leader of this, uh, of the family's uh, vigil. And that's, an, that's not a normal place for me. That's not a normal role for me. I'm the youngest uh, of three, and I was the youngest cousin. I mean, I was always sort of told what to do. <laughs> and I could tell as we, you know, that they were all kind of looking at me for, well, what do we do now? And uh, it took the police maybe three or four days to develop enough evidence to begin to think that my and Meg's supposition was right, that Max had done this willfully. And they developed enough evidence by going through his credit cards to figure out that there was something there. And so then we had to figure out how are we, how are we going to tell the extended family? And that's when I kind of realized they're all going to watch me to see how I respond. And my response was, just put it all out there. And that's been my, that's been my stance ever since because, and mainly it was out of self-preservation because I had all I could do to put one foot in front of the other. You know, as I said, I couldn't even speak in complete sentences at that point. And now I was going to have to figure out, you know, who was in the cone of silence and who, who was going to know everything. You know, shit. The last thing I wanted to do was being an assignment, you know, a, a, CIA assignment, you know, status assignment guy. 
So I just said, put it, you know, tell everybody everything. You know, as a journalist, I wanted to do that. I wasn't going to no comment anybody if I could help it. And, and it's also healthier. Mental illness needs sunlight. And I didn't want anybody to mistake any reticence or lack of comment on our part to interpret that as we were ashamed of Max. He was sick, you know, and uh, that was, it, it, it really wasn't that hard of a decision. You write in the book that by sharing that information as you did, you make it from your burden, you turn it from something that's your burden, as you say, to who am I telling, who, who am I keeping this inside, the feelings involved with that, to their burden if they have a problem or a reaction with that. It's almost a transference from one place to the other. Yeah, I mean, if, if there is stigma attached, I was not going to take that on. That was going to reflect on the person that, that you know, believed there was stigma. Uh, and, and believe me, I didn't care. I mean, I, I, you know, I, it was just so awful at that point. The last thing I was worrying about was, you know, what we looked like or, or what people thought. Although, although as I, as I wrote in the book, I, <laughs> I did spend one afternoon, I, I went to a grocery store a few towns over because I knew no, I, I didn't have to worry that anybody would look at me as the dad of that kid in the newspaper. And that was like, that was almost like, intoxicating you know I, I i just like god this is great this is like my old life you know but i kind of knew that high was only going to last until i got back in the car and went home you know i didn't try to do it again i can go up and down the aisles and nobody's going to be looking at me and imputing thoughts to me and all that kind of stuff exactly my father killed himself when i was 11 years old and one thing i remember about that period is just the way people reacted to seeing that news you know, yeah. to, to learning that fact. What, what did you notice about the way people reacted, especially as you began to tell people or that were outside your family? Well, I think we as a society are better about that now. I think everybody is beginning, certainly than, than when your father ended his life and, and certainly in my childhood, you know, you didn't talk about it. And, and when you did talk about it, it was, uh, you ascribe shame to that person or to that family. Uh, you know, which is just, just so embarrassing now <laughs> that we know what we know. Um, people blanch when you bring it up. And I, you know, I, I, I play a lot of golf and, you know, your, your conversations on the golf course with guys you don't know is, well, you know, tell me about your family. And I thought, I'm not going to pretend Max didn't exist. And, and I'm not going to say, you know, I'm not going to worry about whether this guy can handle what I tell him. I'd say it very even handed. Uh, I don't, you know, the, the, the problem for me is that I don't talk about my children chronologically the way that we always do. You know, I say I have two daughters uh, they're 29 and 24, and we had a son between them. He died at age 21, six years ago. He, he ended his life. He was in a spiral, and we didn't know it, and, and we lost him. And, and I don't say it. I just keep my tone very even mm -hmm. and, because it's the truth. And they usually manage to get out of, I'm really sorry. 
uh, and they, you know, run to their ball, <laughs> but, uh, some don't, I mean, some actually are, you know, I'm really sorry, you know, and, and ask me questions. And then of course I'm more than willing to talk about him and, uh, for reasons we discussed. So, but, but usually it takes people aback. Yeah, I was never embarrassed about it or ashamed of it, but I always felt I was laying something heavy on somebody who didn't see it coming or who might not have asked for that yeah. kind of emotional, you know, blow at that moment. Well, yes. And that's why I try to say it very even handedly. And I always thought, well, I, you know, I'm sorry to dump that on you, but, you know, if you think it's tough, you know, imagine what it's been like for me and, you know, and, you know, I don't really, you know, I'm sorry that, you know, I made you feel uneasy, but you know, so what? <laughs> you had a memorial service for Max. How did you decide what you were going to say and how you were going to describe his life there? Uh, Meg helped me, you know, Meg, who just loved, you know, a, a mom and her son, Meg, Meg knew, Meg understood Max and knew him so much better than I did. You know, some kids go, you know, it's just natural. Uh, and, and, and the mother son thing was, was really special to, you know, between them. Uh, I just decided I was going to tell stories about him and, 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 it, you know, I didn't want, him to be defined by how he died. I thought this is my opportunity to define him by who he was and how he lived. And I wanted to do that at the eulogy, you know, wanted to do that eulogy at the service for that reason, Brian. And I also wanted to do that eulogy so our daughters would understand that we were going to talk about Max in public and that we were not uh, we don't want to hide who Max was. And, uh, in the days leading up to the service, I made sure to, I, I sat them down and I said, I need to practice this. I want you to listen to it. And I did need to practice it, but I also wanted them to hear what I was saying because they were going to say something too. And I wanted them to know it's okay to talk about Max. And, and they both told great stories, uh, about him at his expense, uh, and made people laugh. And that's how it should be. You know, the, the memories, you know, the memory should be good. One thing I really liked about the book was how you're able to so vividly describe grief moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, but then also hold it at a little bit of a remove and think about it as an idea. When were you able to do the latter? That's a great question. It took a it, it took a few weeks, you know, it, for me to realize that it wasn't going away, and that I had to get used to carrying it. The, the, the poet Edward Hirsch wrote a wonderful poem about his son Gabriel, uh, who uh, died, and and he described grief as a carrying a bag of cement up a hill that never ends. And I found great meaning in that, you know, understanding that my grief was always going to be right here and that I just had to get used to the weight of it. That really helped me. And then as I began to think about the amount of pain I was in, it just occurred to me that the 
the amount of pain that you feel when you lose someone close to you is equal to the amount of love you had for that person. And uh, that was just sort of clicked in my head and it just made everything make sense. And, and the, if, if there's no other message that I get, that I deliver in this book, it's that grief is love, that it's a very painful form of love. But for me, understanding that I felt this way because I loved Max just made it easier to deal with. And uh, rather than stiff arm it, which I had done with grief my whole life, uh, lean into it and, and, and let it happen and understand that whatever pain I felt was as, as intense as it was, it was temporary and, and that it would recede. It would come back and it still does, but it would recede and, and that we would experience joy again. If I feel this bad, it's because I love him that much. Exactly. It's a one-to-one relationship. That's what worked for me. Your mileage may vary. You know, I mean, that, that really made a lot of sense to me and it helped me immensely. And one other, you know, one thing, another thing I learned about grief is everybody does it differently. And, and, uh, I couldn't, Meg wanted to know every single detail about Max's last weeks and, and days and hours. And I didn't have the stomach for that. You know, that was just too painful for me. But she needed to know. And I just, you know, you go put your hand on that stove every day, honey, you know, and and tell me how hot it is. And uh, uh, but she let you know, we didn't judge each other. And I think that's the critical part of, of, of a marriage surviving. It's not, you know, that idea is not new to me. David Kessler, who I quote in the book, said, it's not the death of the child that causes parents to split up. It's the fact that they judge each other's grief. And we decided early on that we were going to not judge each other's grief because we, when we first started dating, in 1983, we both read Frank DeFord's book about his daughter, Alex, who had died of cystic fibrosis. And, and Frank and Carol DeFord made a deal that they wouldn't cry at the same time. And we first week, we established the DeFord rule between us. And that, that helped a lot. You mentioned leaning into pain a second ago. What did that mean on a daily basis? Well, it just meant accepting it. You know, I, I am a master. Uh, I, I spent 50, my first 55 years avoiding conflict and, and not doing anything I would consider painful, uh, you know, uh, avoiding pain. Um, I, uh, but you can't, you can't stiff arm grief. You know, you, you have to get it out if you don't. And we told the girls this, you know, if you don't get it out when you want it to, it's going to come out when it wants to, and that may not be convenient for your life. So it was just uh, accepting the fact that I was going to be in a lot of pain for a while. And when my father died in 2007, which was seven plus years before Max, I refused to acknowledge that I was going to lose him. I kept thinking, well, he'll get better. He'll get better. And 
And I did myself a disservice. I did him a disservice. I did my kids a disservice by not uh, accepting the fact that he was dying and, and, and teaching them to accept it. And that was a, you know, another woulda, coulda, shoulda. During the months and years after Max's death, you found yourself talking to him a lot. What kinds yeah. of things did you say? I would just say, and I still do this. Uh, I would just tell him, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't help you more. I'm sorry. You were in such pain. Uh, you know, we really miss you. Um, you know, and, and it's, uh, uh, it, I mean, I don't know what else to say to him, but I, I want to, you know, I just would tell him that, uh, we did, we were doing everything we could. We would have done anything for you, uh, if we had known to do it. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, I'm just saying that into the, into the ethos, I guess, you know, I, I, it, it, it I'm sure it's for my own benefit. Maybe he hears it somewhere. You mentioned sitting down at a computer and writing about your thoughts starting in early mornings. What led you to do that? Is that Ivan, the journalist coming out? Is that, what is it? I, it's the most facile and, and best way I have of, of getting out my thoughts and, and the least, uh, um, as I said, I'm not very good at conflict and, uh, I didn't, and, and I didn't want, you know, I, I knew Meg and the girls were, you know, I didn't want to, uh, I don't want to add to their pain by just dumping all of my stuff on them. So this was a way just to get it out. And, uh, you know, and I, I, you know, in terms of expressing my emotions, I think with my fingers, uh, you know, and uh, I don't know about you. I think that might be an occupational hazard mm -hmm. uh, or, or, or quality perhaps rather than hazard, you know, but um, I, uh, it was just a way to sort of get it out. And, you know, the, the beginning I was doing it most mornings and it just gradually tapered off over about 18 months. And, and I had it all, in my laptop. So when I finally decided to write, you know, that was very helpful because it, it took me back to what I was feeling then. Some of it was just diary and, and baloney and, you know, this is what happened today, but a lot of it was intimate uh, and interior. And I would never that I would stuff. I would have never remembered. You published a couple of pieces about Max's death, including one from medium in 2018 that went viral. How did a piece like that going viral make you feel? Well, it made me feel gratified and it sort of planted the seed in my head that, well, maybe, you know, maybe at some point I'll write a book, you know, um, uh, that was, uh, that was, that really felt good, Brian, to be honest with you, just that people responded to it. And, uh, I had, I had published the eulogy on medium because people asked me for a copy of it and I thought, well, I'll just put it out there. And then I wrote an essay a year after he died. Uh, and then I just had some thoughts and it's really the genesis of the title of the book. I was looking at the wallpaper photo on my phone one day and it's a, it's a picture from Sarah, our oldest college graduation of the three kids. And the girls are looking right at the camera and Max is 
looking up and away to the right. And I'm, and I'm just looking at my phone thinking, look at me, you know, look at, look at the camera, you know, but he hated getting his, he hated getting his picture taken. Uh, so I keep trying to catch his eye. You also talk right about this process that began really in 2016, where you are balancing the life you are continuing to live with your duty to keep him close to you in some way. You're right. I want to keep going, but I don't want to leave him behind. How does that play itself out? Well, you have to leave him behind. You know, I, I, I didn't want to, but you know, it, it, every fiber of your body wants to just uh, get into the fetal position and, and stay there and, and stay where he was. But if you do that, then you lose again because you're not opening yourself up to what else is out there. I, I had enough of a sense of, of uh, I don't know if it's, it's uh, Buddhist thinking, but I knew just because this one really bad thing had happened to me, that didn't mean that everything that happened to me from then on out was going to be bad. There were still going to be good things that happened. And if I, if I just withdrew and just stayed there in that very comfortable and warm fetal position, then I was going to miss stuff again. You know, we, our nephew got married two weeks after Max's body surfaced, surfaced in Lake Ontario. And we were not really interested in, in celebrating, but I, um, we were not really interested in celebrating, but I, I wanted uh, I, I thought we had to go because uh, if we didn't go, we'd miss that. You know, that's more joy we would miss. And if we didn't go, you know, the and maybe this is egotistical, but you know, our nephew's wedding, we would not have. You know, they would always remember. Well, that yeah, they couldn't come or or wouldn't come or didn't come. So we went. And, you know, Meg hated every second of it. And I, I got out there and it sort of went, you know, fake it until you make it. And, and that, but that was sort of the philosophy that I wanted to pursue. You continue to go out to eat on his birthday every year? Yes, we, yes, we do. Max was a uh, renowned eater of just junk, uh, you know, loved hamburgers uh, hated buns. He was the pickiest of eaters. Uh, he, he ate his, and, and just awful. He would eat his steak and his hamburgers medium. Well, I mean, just gray and, uh, big on sugared cereal. You know, he, he, he did love apples and, and, and Martinelli's apple juice. I went to school with John Martinelli. So that's always was always in our house. Um, but, uh, every on his birthday, which is in January, Meg and I will go. If we're at home, we go to his favorite burger place. And if we're wherever we are, we go to the, you know, just to eat the biggest, uh, you know, gut bomb of a burger we can find with fries in his honor. I want to ask you about one point of journalism that's within this book. There's a big story in college football, which is your beat, uh, in 2018, Tyler Holinsky, the Washington state quarterback died by suicide. Now you're college football writer. That's the kind of story you might pursue. What did you think when you, <laughs> you saw <think>? that news? <laughs> when, well, he died in January of 18. And as soon as I saw the news, I, I just went, Oh my God, you know, I'm going to have to deal with this at some point as a journalist. And I shuddered because what I didn't want to do 
was the, you know, the TikTok, you know, the, you know, this is how Tyler Kalinske ended his life. I even, I thought that was intrusive and I knew somebody, I knew the story needed to be told. I just didn't have the stomach to do it. And so I just sort of slow played it and thank God, Greg Bishop at SI did it and did a terrific job. And so I thought, okay, that box is checked. And a week or two later, Drew Gallagher, the, the producer at, at game day, you know, contacted me and said, you know, we want you to do something about Tyler Holinsky. And, you know, I said, okay. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I, I've been in this company 13 years and, and game day hasn't asked me to do much. So we all know why they're asking me to do the story. Right. And, you know, and I said, Drew, look, I get it. It makes perfect sense, but if I'm going to do it, then, you know, write what I know, let me do a story about the parents because, that's why you're asking me is because I'm, I'm knowledgeable about this and that's what I'm knowledgeable about. So I contacted Mark Kalinsky and just sort of wrote him an email and laid everything out and just said, I think I know a little bit about where you are. And I called him and he, and he answered and we talked for an hour and 10 minutes and uh, they trusted me. And that was such a gift to me that they trusted me. And Lauren Soule, who was a terrific producer at Game Day, you know, did a, just a wonderful job of putting the piece together. And uh, what I came out of that with was a good story. But Meg and I, and and Mark and Kim Halinski are our friends now, and and support one another as we go down this you know road we don't want to be on. What prompted you to finally write this all down in a book? Uh, as I said, the, re- the response to the medium piece that, that you brought up, you know, that, it, that germ was planted, you know, that seed was planted in, in my head. And, and uh, I kind of began to think it's time, you know, I, I, perspective. I had the perspective to be able to write it. I had my legs under me emotionally to be able to write it clear headedly. Uh, and then in January of last year of 20, I had lunch with a college friend of mine that I had worked on the paper, this, this college paper with, and, and she lives in Chicago and she almost came over the table at me. When are you going to write about Max? <laughs> and I thought, well, I have been thinking about it and, and the universe provided, I mean, it, you know, I hate. I hate thanking the, you know, the pandemic, but all of a sudden I didn't have a whole lot to do, uh, you know, uh, so, uh, wrote a proposal and, uh, sent it to my agent and she read it and she said, she called me, God bless her. She said, uh, this is really well written, but it reads like you're writing about somebody else. And I thought, well, yeah, that's, that's what I do. You know, she said, I want, she said, I want to read about you and Max. That's what, the story is that's what everybody wants to know about you know and it was like oh you know I, I didn't argue with her I just went oh of course and you know you know how long a book proposal is I rewrote it in a weekend because it was like I just instead of standing here I took three steps over and, and turned my body a little bit and looked at it from there and I went oh okay and boom we were off you write that in the acknowledgments that you obtained Meg's emotional permission to write the book. What did, what did that entail? Well, I mean, and that's, 
that's the truth. I, you know, they they have been very, uh, they being Meg and, and Sarah and Elizabeth, our daughters have been indulgent of me being public. And, and as I said, grief is individual and everybody does it differently. And, and by my being public, they have become public and they, uh, they've been very good about it. I, when I finished the manuscript, I handed, I handed it, I emailed it to each of them, said, all right, let me know. And Sarah, who is a, a, a good editor, you know, she made some editorial suggestions and Meg, uh, there were a couple of parts of it that she, that I really pissed her off, you know, that I had just misinterpreted something she had done. Uh, and, and I said, okay, I'll fix it. And if I, and if you don't like the way I fixed it, I'll take it out. And if you don't like that, I'll send them the advance back. It's not that, you know, I, this book is not going to get in the way. And she's been a terrific supporter ever since. And so has Elizabeth, but, you know, they, uh, and I'm still checking in with them. You know, Elizabeth, the, e the literal eve of publication, which was Monday night, the 25th, uh, I sat down with Elizabeth. I said, how are you doing with all this? You know, are you okay? And, and she said, well, I, you know, I dreamt about Max last night. I said, I dreamt about him a couple of nights ago and we started talking about our dreams and uh, it, it's hard for her. She's a much more private individual, but she's been very good about it. I'll close on that note, Ivan. When do you think about Max these days? Not, you know, not as much as, as I wish I did, you know, and that's the sad part of it, Brian, your life goes on. You know, I, I, I brought him, brought him with him as much as I can and I like to sit there and think about who he would be now at age 27, almost 28, but I don't know. And I'll never know. And that's, that's just really sad. Ivan Mazel, thanks for coming on the press box. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much to Ivan Mazel. Again, the national suicide prevention lifeline can be reached at 1-800-273-8255. I'm Brian Curtis. The producer of this podcast is Erica Cervantes. Dave and I are back Monday. Have a great weekend.